0: You are listening to a Mining Stock Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to Episode 6 of the AME Podcast, Exploration Matters. I'm your host, Kylie Williams, and today is Wednesday, August twenty-four. Today on the podcast we're taking a field trip to the Bushveld Complex in South Africa to hear about the Waterberg mine under development there. Our guide is Frank Hallam, President, CEO and a Director of Platinum Group Metals. He has a deep connection to the project and talks us through the ESG situation and the technical challenges and what's next for the project. Next. We have an in-depth conversation with Alan Young, Director of the Materials Efficiency Research Group, or MERGE. Alan takes us through some global ESG trends and suggests some things that companies can do to get ahead and set themselves apart. But before we get into the interviews, here's some news from around the province and the Yukon. Today, AMARC Resources provided an update on exploration activities at its Joy Copper Gold District in the Tutacon portion of the Golden Horseshoe Trend in North Central British Columbia. Freeport-McMoRan are owning into Joy, and Amark is the operator of the project. Highlights for 2022 include receiving timely drilling camp permits, and exploration agreements are in place with local First Nations. Geological, geochemical and geophysical surveys are underway and as of August 15, 13 drill holes have been completed for 6,783 metres at the Pine Deposit and the Twins and SWT targets. This is well over half of the 10,000 metres of drilling planned. Up in the Yukon, Snowline Gold announced initial preliminary assay results for its 2022 drill program at the Valley Zone in their Rogue project. Two holes each intersected broad zones of mineralization, averaging greater than 1.5 grams per ton gold over significant widths. Snowline have two drills active at Valley with 6,750 meters drilled on the target so far this season for a total of 7,554 metres drilled on the target to date. Finally, Sun Summit Minerals reported today that they have been granted a five-year, multi-year area-based permit for ongoing drilling programs and exploration activities across the company's 33,000 hectare buck project in central British Columbia. The permit allows for up to 217 drill sites, up to 40 line kilometres of geophysical surveys, up to 250 trenching sites, as well as construction and modification of exploration access trails. Today's episode is sponsored by Digby. Digby is a technology company that builds solutions for the extractive mining industry. With their mining ESG disclosure platform, database and research reports, Digby aims to mitigate risk, improve transparency and foster a stronger and better global mining community for all. Digby's overriding mission is to make mining better. Learn more at digby.com. Our first guest on the podcast today is Frank Hallam, President, CEO, and a director of Platinum Group Metals Limited. He's one of the co-founders of the company, which was formed in February 2002 here in Canada. Soon after its formation, they set off for South Africa to look for platinum group metals, including platinum, palladium, rhodium, and gold. You may know that the Platinum Group Metals are highly valued for their role in vehicle emission control, uh, in catalytic converters and such. They also have a range of other industrial and really important medical and electronic applications. I started our discussion by asking Frank to tell us a little more about what stage the Waterberg project was at.
1: The sort of defining discovery for the company was in 2011, a very large thick deposit. Uh, We call it the Waterberg deposit. We discovered it on first principles. As a geologist, you would enjoy this story. Uh, (laughs) I I could make it long, but I won't. Um, the, uh, The north limb of the Bushveld igneous complex heads northward, obviously, and it's exposed for the most part at surface uh, as it heads northward. There's some great deposits there. The Mahalakwena mine operated by Anglo Platinum, Mm -hmm. uh, the Platte Reef uh, mine, which is in development right now. Uh, And as you move north of Platte Reef, the uh, the intrusion goes under uh, sediments, under the Waterberg sediments. And so not a lot of exploration was done uh, in that area. Yeah. Uh, hypothesized that there could be a d- deposit in embayment. There could be a reason to drill under the sediments, um, and so we did. We uh, did some original work. We brought in some partners, the government of Japan. We did some exploration, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, third hole hit, and we discovered this um, amazing thick, shallow PGM-bearing deposit. So it's uh, you know it's the most recent of the large deposits found in the world, and it's one of only a handful of of thick, shallow, mechanized, possible, or mechanized capable mines in the industry.
0: What stage is the project at right now? So um, that was 2011. Yeah. Um, what have you done? A uh, like a resource estimate, and what kind of stage are you at right now?
1: Sure. Well, as with you know many large tier one mining assets, it takes time, and you know we've done an awful lot of drilling. Uh, There's some 443 mother holes, each with two or three deflections have been drilled on the project. Uh, We've defined a, um, a reserve across eight and a half kilometers of strike and a resource across 13 and a half kilometers. So it's an enormous deposit. Uh, it's now been uh, engineered to a definitive feasibility study. Mm-hmm. Approximately $81 million U.S. has been invested. Our definitive feasibility study was authored by some of the leading engineering firms in the world. Uh, Stantec did the uh, underground and the, the, the mining, DRA, did the infrastructure and surface plant. Uh, yep. both, both leading engineering firms in the business. Uh, Impala Platinum. Uh, is a partner on the project they uh, reviewed all of the work uh, scope of work for the feasibility study and the resulting report um, amic uh, did a peer review of the resource and srk did a peer review of the definitive feasibility study so it's a um, it's a high quality document and uh, it indicates that Waterberg will be uh, one of the lowest cost pgm producing mines in the world so um, it's now at that point where the project has been uh, permitted we were granted our um our mining right in 2021 uh we're currently at the stage where we're assembling our our financial package our capital plan if you will yeah. and uh, the key thing that we're working on uh, right now the sort of gatekeeping item is what we call uh, concentrate offtake yeah. so a, a mine like Waterberg, uh, the ore is uh, milled, it's put put through a flotation circuit and we produce basically a a grey powder, we call it a concentrate to get the platinum palladium, rhodium, gold, copper, nickel out of that you have to melt it and put it through a a refining process for base metals and precious metals and so there are off takers or smelters in South Africa who do that work, we're in negotiations, discussions with all of them it's a bit of a club and capacity Mm -hmm. is somewhat limited so we have not achieved terms as of today yeah as an alternative to that we're also doing our own uh study on our own furnace so we've already completed a pre-feasibility study on a mat furnace and we've done a beneficiation study on a base metal refinery and we're speaking with our existing shareholders and other investors about going our own path and building our own furnace if we need to in order to get our product to market so that's where we're at right now we're kind of right in that pre-construction phase where we're assembling the major components that are needed to bring the project into production
0: that's incredible so it sounds like you've got the engineering the metallurgy the geology all those underground pieces i guess you could say um what's happening you know socially and environmentally at the surface what what kind of communities do you have around um what are there any issues that uh you're you're working towards i guess you've been there for over a decade well over a decade
1: yeah Yep. we've been there a long time and we have a long-standing relationship with our local host communities there are three farms that will host the, uh, the majority of the infrastructure. In fact, two of them are where about 95% of the infrastructure will be uh, yep. there's one farm to the north of the project uh, which will be many many years before we uh, put a vent raise there so yep. with the uh, the two communities where the infrastructure the tailings the the mill you know all of the facilities will be we've been uh, working through a consultation process with them uh, throughout the exploration phase and through the feasibility phase we're currently working with the leadership of those two farms and it's interesting they're they're privately held so uh, oh. they these Farms were originally um, uh, purchased and, in part, bequeathed to uh, a group of owners back in the 1940s, and so the current owners are the heirs of those original owners. And so, we're working with the, the bona fide leadership of each farm to put in place access agreements uh, for the long term that will uh, allow us to build our infrastructure as needed. We we actually have a right of access under the. Uh, the Mineral Resources and Petroleum Development Act in South Africa. And mm-hmm. we are in fact already on the ground working. Uh, so, you know, we could just move forward and, and do uh, as we must to build the mine, but it's our preference to work closely with the local communities uh, so that we have uh, a, a cooperative and, uh, and satisfactory arrangement for everyone. It's our objective to develop the mine to the maximum benefit of all stakeholders. And so, you know, when you say what are, are some of the issues, um, you know, we need to bring, uh, as part of our work, we'll be bringing power, water, roads, training, uh, education, uh, medical facilities, uh, you know, and, and all of the things that go into, uh, you know, investment and upliftment in the community. Yep. So, you know, th- these are things that we commit to, you uh, included in our social and labor plan and in our uh, described investment for the project. And so we need to work with the local communities to achieve those things while at the same time building our mind and of course, you know, particularly in South Africa, there's always somebody who's not happy. So despite the fact that we have the support of leadership, there are uh, two or three groups, uh, small groups of people, uh, one or two, three people who have uh, who have protested or, or appealed the grant of the mining right. And, uh, yep. you know, notwithstanding whether there's any validity to their claims or not, we don't believe there is. They need to have the opportunity to. Uh, to say what they must and go through yep. the process and we're doing that as well so there are a few uh appeals that are going through the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy yep. and we're very confident in the uh in the uh the authorization and the justification for grant of our mining right and we're certain that we will work together with these local groups and um you know the local government in Limpopo to uh, achieve a, a cooperative outcome and move forward here in, in the near future
0: awesome um when you say farms and, and families and inheritance what what are we picturing at the surface is it relative like i'm picturing arid uh cattle farms is that what we're talking about here like yeah, you know for that's, your that's... for your north american audience your bc audience um they're probably <laughs> yeah. picturing some mountains and some water
1: <laughs> yeah no uh it's a good question Kylie. i guess the uh uh, the best analogy would be something uh, near a Soyuz <laughs> oh. <laughs> or, or, or Penticton. So, if yep. you're from North America and British Columbia, you'll know what I mean. It, yep. It's um, it, it is uh, it, it, it is arid. Um, you know, it's it's uh, very sandy loamy soil. Yep. Um, there is a. Um, a, a, a plateau behind us an escarpment. It's called the Mahabrain plateau, and uh, that's a an area where the sediments are thicker, and that's an area that uh, that we won't be touching the surface of. We'll mine beneath that. Yes. But in the area to the to the east and to the south of that of plateau uh, is where the infrastructure will be. It's. Um, it's really uh, it's sub marginal from an agricultural point of view. The people are very industrious and they work hard to bring uh, you know water and, and the necessities for planting there. But it's just it's really hard to make a living farming up there. So it's a it's very uh, very marginal in terms of farming. There is cattle grazing on the area, yeah. Um, but uh, but most of it is is kind of uh, you know when you talk about your African safari, it's 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 bushveld. It's uh, small shrubs and trees with a lot of grass so yeah. it's probably fairly close to what you were thinking it's a it's a good thing you asked me to explain <laughs> there aren't that there aren't that many people there there are um in the vicinity where our infrastructure is going to be approximately a thousand people maybe okay. 1200 so it's not densely populated and we've gone to uh, a fair amount of work to keep our infrastructure as far away from any of the uh, small communities or, or uh, you know, habitations as possible. So that's one of the mm. things we've worked with uh, the communities to achieve is to uh, put the infrastructure in areas that don't interfere with the, uh, the local inhabitants. and At least it interferes as, as little as possible. And there are no uh, relocations required at this time. So we've done a good job, I think, of getting our, our infrastructure in locations where we can minimise the impact.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, With all those pieces in place and and going through the permit process and having these communications, you also chose then to do the Digby ESG assessment um, for the project and you're continuing to work with them. Uh, Why did you choose this particular uh, process Um, and what was the process like? And also maybe a step back and why why go that seemingly extra step? Um, Because, you know, there's a there's ticking all the boxes in terms of permits and all those bits and pieces, but uh, it's kind of like an additional step to to show what you're doing with respect to ESG.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, as our listeners will know, <laughs> in today's investment world, ESG is emerging as a very important decision factor for for investors, mm-hmm. and so you know we're we're really made to give attention to this topic matter by the evolving world that we live in. And, you know, as as these ESG issues came to the forefront, one of the things we realized immediately was that we're already doing a lot of these things, you know, through our in, environmental um impact assessment in our environmental works program, our uh, environmental authorization, yep. uh, the, uh, the the social and labor plan, and just compliance with the regulatory framework in South Africa, yep. you know, we're already doing the things that you would like us to see from an ESG perspective. And, and let's face it, it's, it's the right thing to do anyhow. Uh, you know, One of our objectives is to uh, minimize our impact and protect the environment while developing the project to the maximum benefit of all stakeholders. So if you're yeah. going to do you need to pay attention to these things so as a you know relatively small company in uh, entering into this uh, environment where esg is so important the the next problem you come up with is how do i possibly deal with it when, you know when you look out at the uh at the environment there are there's a plethora of different standards and frameworks and mm-hmm. uh, you know, just trying to figure out what exactly what you should be doing i mean some companies have 100 pages on esg and reports uh, of of this nature. I mean, that's not something we're in a position to do right now. And I'm not sure it would be effective anyway. So when we um, looked around, um, we've known Jamie Strauss from DigMe for a long time. And we looked at the new initiative they were undertaking to basically uh, take all of these various frameworks and uh, and distill them down to a, a simplified key framework that still addresses all of the areas that you need to be attentive to. Uh, When we saw that, it was like making organization from confusion. So (laughs) we gravitated to to it right away. Um, And and when we learned more about the process, um, the service that Digby provides includes consultation with industry people. So people who've actually been sitting in my chair and doing the work that we're doing um, and who have familiarity with uh, both of what we're trying to do from an operational point of view and what we need to do from a disclosure point of view. And yep. so, with their guidance, it helped us make our uh, our message more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped us uh, identify gaps where we could, uh, you know, do more, and yep. also helped us identify um, you know targets and aspirations for the future. So it really helped improve the communication to our, our readers and investors. Um, and by by doing all of that as well, uh, it it also, and we believe, helps make our message more credible. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that brought us to Digby, but it, it you know, it, it was really a, a tool for a group like ours without a separate, you know, independent ESG department. Uh, yep. We could bring a lot of skills and, uh, and organize organization to bear that we might not otherwise be able to do.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. You brought up right at the end there that at the exploration and development stage, you don't have the, the resources that, a fully operating mine would have to, you know, go through the IRMA process or the, I can't think of another one off the top of my head, a lot of acronyms bouncing around in there. Um, But yeah, when you're at that uh, kind of struggling to bring all the pieces together, um, you don't have the budget or the resources to do a, a much bigger one.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, so what's next? Like you're, you're given kind of the Uh, a rating from Digby that you're, Mm -hmm. that you can publish and that you can share with investors and and with the public. Uh, What's next first on the uh, ESG front and then in terms of the project itself?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, in terms of the the ESG process and our reporting, we're, we're kind of uh, now on the track. So we've filed our inaugural report with our last fiscal year end, and we're now working on our, report for the year going forward and through through the process we we've identified um, areas where we can refine our reporting to to better communicate what we're already doing but we've also identified uh things looking forward that are important and uh you know that become more clear when you look at it through the lens of esg one of the big areas one of the big issues in the area where we are is water. Mm. Um, you know you, you mentioned earlier you envision this arid environment and that's absolutely correct. Yep. Um, the, the interesting thing is there is actually a lot of water underground. But mm. the sand the the soil is so sandy and loamy when it rains the water just goes straight, straight through it. Yep. But the water collects in basins in the in the bedrock underground. Mm. So there is water there and uh, one of our big initiatives is to access that water both for mine water and for the local communities. Mm. So, so we're we're very, very uh, interested and uh, and focused on both uh, drilling and accessing water through wells and bringing the piping, you know, the articulation and the systems to bring that water to the communities and to the mine. And we're also looking at ways to minimize our use of water at the mine so that our impact on the the, uh, the water table and the water supply is minimized. So looking at things like dry stack tailings, for example, we can reduce yep. our makeup water by 40 to 50%. Mm. So that's something that we're focused on. Um, so uh, looking at battery electric vehicles, um, it's probably prohibitive to invest in them at the beginning but we're looking at when and how we can phase battery electric vehicles into our underground fleet yep. in the future as we move from contractor equipment to our own fleet and at the moment in time when we're uh, you know up and producing then you can you can introduce uh, additional capex and and, uh, and benefit from the reduced carbon emissions and uh, reduced ventilation and heating cooling all that sort of thing so yeah um, so that's something that we've identified and we're focused on. But um, I, th- I think the general comment would be that we're, our intention with ESG going forward is to, to, to continue to improve the reporting that we give so that the, the message is clear and understandable and that we, uh, we learn how to comply and how to report. Absolutely. Yeah, and then in terms of the project itself, I, I sort of answered that question uh, earlier. The key things for us at this point in time are either an off-take agreement for the concentrate Yep, or the uh, uh, the commencement to build our own smelting arrangement, our own furnace. So those are keys that we're working on right now. Yep. Uh, we're also very busy on the finance side because uh, you know, there's a, a reasonable amount of capital. It's estimated in our feasibility study. at something like 620 million U.S. dollars to uh, to fund the project on a peak funding basis. So we've got that um, substantially identified where that money is going to come from, but we have to get some of these other things in place in order to, to draw upon that funding. So, th- so those are things that we're, we're working on right now.
0: Fantastic! It's a really interesting project, and I'm really excited that I got to hear about it today. And I'm I'm going to keep an eye on it now to see how it's going. But we appreciate you sharing your uh, your experience, telling us the story of the project, but also of the the ESG assessment that you did with Digby and and how that helped communicate with investors and and with stakeholders about that particular part of the project, which is really essential. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: No pleasure, Kylie. Car- thank you.
0: Our next guest on the podcast agrees that credible, independent verification of ESG performance standards are a necessary part of business in this day and age. His name is Alan Young, and he is the director of the Materials Efficiency Research Group, or MERGE, which is a consultancy that offers sustainability solutions for companies around the globe. I started by asking Alan about some trends in sustainability that he's noticed since he started his work early in the 90s up in the Yukon.
2: I would say in the last five years in particular, it feels like the curve has gotten very steep. So I think it's fair to say that the industry in large part has moved from a fairly defensive and isolated position in regards to stakeholders to one in which they've been much more integrated throughout with with directly with stakeholders and and rights holders um, as partners, And more so in the supply chain, as we're seeing the questions about ethical and responsible sourcing have just ramped up. You know, it started with kind of the blood diamonds thing, but it's gone well beyond that. And as you know, uh, electronics, automotive, now green energy are all really interested in where their metals come from and their minerals come from and are asking tougher and tougher questions. The interesting part for me is that a number of companies are seeing this not as a threat, but as a business advantage and are positioning themselves to be competitive in terms of the environment, social governance and and, and other things. So the scrutiny has drastically <laughs> increased. Um, But I think the innovation is also come a long way in in the industry. But you always have to be careful to not generalize with the industry. I find Um, there's a lot of leaders and a lot of there's a normal curve, shall we say. There is no one mining industry. There are many industries, many uh, companies and many players in the industry It's really important to when you, when you're looking at the industry to appreciate its diversity, to appreciate the diversity of business models and approaches that people take. So, uh, but overall, I think the, the, the scrutiny has increased mm-hmm. considerably and with that scrutiny has come an opportunity for good companies to differentiate themselves. And that's where I've been really doing a lot of work to try and connect the responsible actors who see biz- business advantage in doing the right thing to connect them up their supply chains with investors and with buyers so that they can be duly rewarded for the investments they're making.
0: What are the roadblocks that these you know responsible actors are are coming up against? Like what is it that they have to get maybe over or around to try and perform at their best?
2: There are many, <laughs> no question about it. Um, I think three buckets of things come to mind. One unfortunately is uh, is that the uh, we have a rather outdated regulatory system that does not create sort of competitive advantages or conditions, let alone incentives for companies to go ahead. So it creates a sort of uneven playing field that does not necessarily drive toward best practice. We have a long way to go in uh, regulations that uh, don't always send the right signal for people to invest in uh, environment and, and and social best practice. Um, and it could be things like waste characterization and trade issues. It could also be a variety of permitting approaches which don't necessarily emphasize the need to consult and accommodate. I think BC is making some headway in these terms, things like the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, but uh, and some recent updates in minor regulations, but there's an early stages. So so there is a government obstacle to incentivize best practice, which I would put as one one core area. Another that's really challenging sometimes is the, the navigating this vast array of standards and reporting systems that have proliferated over the number of years. It's pretty easy to get lost in various demands, but it's really important to understand that all standards aren't created equal and that the value proposition for some of them is very high in terms of confidence of stakeholders, while others are mere paper exercises that you know, demand a lot of effort, but don't actually result in better benefits for companies and stakeholders. So, you know, addressing this challenge of the proliferation of standards is is critical, and it requires a careful examination of, you know, the problems that companies are trying to solve for and who is best positioned to provide the credibility that standards um, through standards compliance and others so Mm. it's a jungle out there and you really need to think carefully about who you're trying to satisfy and what it takes to do that i think there are answers to that but they might not initially be obvious and if you're not familiar with that that landscape it's it's challenging And then I think the other thing that's there's a number of internal roadblocks in terms of how you know key performance indicators are structured, and often traditional production-based indicators that are you know conventional throughout all kinds of, of companies, not just mining and mineral exploration ones, but they can be measuring for the wrong things, and or at least not capturing incentives for employees to invest in in the best ESG practice activities. So while somebody may want to do it, it might not be good for their career to do it. And so the KPI alignment is really important as well. You know, there's still this sort of siloed effect of trying to do the right thing, in different parts of the company, and that can hinder the kind of integrated solutions and strategies that need that are needed to be effective and efficient. So I think we're still seeing some fragmented approaches to solving particular problems, where I think one of the core trends that we need to pay attention to is the need to integrate ESG at the highest level and have that permeate Across all aspects of operations, when companies are doing that, they're seeing greater impact and greater benefit for that. So you've got internal, you've got government, and then you've got you know sort of confused market signals, all of which are navigable mm-hmm. but not necessarily obvious.
0: I want to pick up on something you said there that I think will be really relevant to our audience: is that there's a lot of geologists and project managers and and people working in our industry who ESG is perhaps part of their role, but maybe they're not getting recognized for it or maybe they're getting overloaded with it a bit more. What's your advice for people in those positions where either they want to contribute more or they are overloaded with too much? Whose role is it and how do we distribute those roles the way you were saying about you know, the internal processes?
2: Yeah, I think it's really important that this becomes kind of everybody's job. Like you mm-hmm. don't just hand this off to the community relations consultant or, or, you know, the community relations department, because it's the person on the ground. It's often the geologist on the ground who knows the most about what a problem and a potential solution is. And so I think my approach would be you have an integrated team that, that looks at both the technical and the social aspects of these and the environmental aspects of these because it's when there's a direct communication with affected communities or others that you can really you know hear what the deeper problem is and then develop a solution that's most elegant for that. And and so I think it's really important to have integrated teams and have literacy around these issues so that everybody knows it's core business to to make sure you've got good relations. It's core business to know that you have a, a work program that is addressing those considerations while still achieving its technical and and financial obligations. And it can't happen in a fragmented way or it can happen, but in a very it costs more money and it takes more time. So integrate the teams, make everybody aware of of the goals, because we know that just as if you don't find the right deposit, um, you won't get a mine if you don't have the right relations you won't get a mind. These things are fundamentally interrelated and and need to be solved for in a a way that reflects the full dimensions of the problems we're solving for.
0: I agree wholeheartedly that it should definitely be part of everyone's role and they should be empowered to to have those conversations and and to be able to contribute. Zooming out a little bit, what are your investment clients asking for that we're maybe not providing?
2: Well, first, I would say that that I'm certainly hearing more about the need... To have, uh, we're using the shorthand of ESG-friendly explorations, but uh, so that companies are, who are moving these projects forward are not inheriting liabilities, and and that is really interesting. It's coming out of not just you know the ethical investors; it's coming out of main stage investors, and um, whether it's concerns about it, it, community relations or or, or environmental challenges, there you know people talking openly about you know projects will be either discounted or provided premium in the sense of preferential according to these things. They are on the line. And that's happening to a degree that I, I had not anticipated. So it, that's definitely a factor. You're going to be having the value of your project discounted or 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 valued according to these things. Somebody's going to be asking and they're going to be looking more. So so I would say um, a key element of this is third party assurance in order to have the credible ESG reporting. I think we're in early stages of that. Uh, things like the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, to a degree towards sustainable mining, provides that. There's an increasing sophistication and literacy among downstream buyers and investors who are, in turn, increasing under increasing scrutiny from consumers and NGOs. That means that they really are looking for credible independent verification of performance standards. This is the new normal. And saying you're doing something doesn't mean anything. Having a credible third party say you're doing something is what is being expected. And that's coming along, but it's what, you know, you just have to assume that third party verification is something that you're going to have to work with as you do with your books, you know, and so in that sense, it's not. I think at the grassroots level, the big issue in Canada is obviously around the respect for Indigenous rights. And if that's not done thoughtfully and meaningfully, um, you know, it'll put a project at risk sooner or later. So it's encouraging that we're seeing proactive steps being taken. Um, NWT and Yukon are now seeing more of that hardwired into some of the regulatory systems and BC is indicated that, that middle tenure will be part of the DRIPA implementation plan. So that's good. But but I think that that I just was uh, part of a series of meetings with a investors worth, I don't know, with like $1.1 trillion, And their big question was all around free prior informed consent and the degree to which this was being satisfied and the degree to which they can be scouring the planet for you know, companies and projects that can credibly fulfill that. So I think the uh, the good news is that there are a growing number of successes out there that can be drawn on within this uh, ethic and community engagement work. And so there's really no excuse not to be part of the the, the change toward that more inclusive model. But, but, you know, first and foremost, that's what's got to be done here in Canada. Um, and then the other thing I would say about... Investor and company expectations is that um, you know there, there's a convergence of social, environmental, and governance awareness and demands, and so rather than sort of playing a whack-a-mole where you're trying to solve for that problem and solve for this problem and solve for that problem, and somebody, I think the what people are looking for is companies that have a an inherent sort of business model and working philosophy. That, that incorporates responsibility on environment and social issues inherently into everything they do. It's how they communicate it's how they manage. And and rather than looking for, you know, one thing here and one thing there, they're looking for companies that that are very clear that their business model is based on stable community relations and the reduction of long-term liability. This has to be an integrated package. And I think rather than look at it as a sort of a, a burden of reporting, it becomes an approach and a business model that if you're successful in demonstrating leadership on will lead you down a path of, of uh, you know, financial as well as operational success.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. I think it's been a really valuable conversation for our members. We really appreciate your time and, and your knowledge on this.
2: Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm I'm glad that NBC is looking into these issues and, and trying to explore them in in more more depth and sharing them as we all kind of learn our way through this rapidly evolving scenario. So, uh, so good luck with it.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the AME podcast, Exploration Matters. Exploration Matters is a Mining Stock Daily partner production. I'm your host, Kylie Williams, and today's episode was recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil nations. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Digby, for today's episode. If you would like any more information on anything we've discussed in the episode today, visit amebc.ca and have a safe day every day. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. The Association for Mineral Exploration BC and Mining Stock Daily are not responsible for any loss arising from any decision connected to the information presented herein. Please do your research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.